from Washington, D.C., across the nation and around the world. Stand by for an overview of the hottest topics and people being discussed on air, online, at the coffee shop and across the backyard fence. Powered by the research of Talkers Magazine, the national conversation. It's time for the Michael Harrison Wrap. Here's Michael Harrison. Thank you, Victoria Jones. Monday, December 13th through Friday, December 17th, 2021. A week of concerns about whether the weather is caused by whatever. Scary pandemic stats, cyber insecurity, the southern border crisis, Biden versus Manchin, Roe versus Wade, race relations, urban crime, urban violence, urban mire, and of course, it's the economy, smarty pants. We're about to embark upon an hour of Black Belt Talk Radio during which your tolerance for hearing different but legitimate points of view will be tested. We've got lefties, righties, and fence-sitters. Don't get angry. Just maintain a degree of educated skepticism. We'll be joined by Brett Winterbull in Charlotte, Rob Carson in Kansas City, Dr. Renee Kohansky in Princeton, Dom Giordano in Philadelphia, and Victoria Jones in the nation's capital. It's the power-packed 60 pounds of shaving cream shoved into a 60-minute spray can weekend radio show featuring opinionated yappers from across the country with microphones, smartphones, and digital recording devices sharing their observations as well as the feelings of their targets constituents with whom they do their daily dance of affirmation in a fragmented, noisy world where we try to avoid the modern-day syndrome of seeking victory at the expense of truth. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Wrap, heard coast-to-coast and around the world on great radio stations across the U.S. and the U.K. The past week's hottest political and social topics discussed in the American talk media. Information is gathered from a variety of sources, including data tracked by the broadcasting trade publication Talkers Magazine, of which I'm editor and publisher. Fasten your C-Crane CC earbuds. Speaking of which, this installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap is sponsored in part by C-Crane, makers and distributors of great radio. Give a radio to someone for Christmas. Visit their website at ccrane.com or give them a call at 800-522-8863. Okay, here we go. Joining us now is Kevin Casey, executive editor of Talkers Magazine. Kevin, give us a rundown of the 10 most talked about stories on talk shows in America this past week. Thank you, Michael. At number 10, the release of more classified documents about the assassination of JFK tied with the firing of Jacksonville Jaguars coach Urban Meyer. The National Archives has released about 1,500 formerly classified documents about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy some 58 years ago, but unfortunately there's nothing in them that sheds new light on the subject. And it seems three national college football championships don't necessarily translate into success in the professional NFL, where the players are less likely to put up with being bullied. At number nine, U.S. relations with China and Russia. Tensions continue to build between the United States and its superpower adversaries. It seems Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin held a video summit of their own this week. Mm, That can't be good. At number eight, social media and cybersecurity. As we move deeper into the digital era, we must deal with a downside that encompasses numerous problems and troubling issues. 
like the growing vulnerability we all have to being hacked, robbed, and spied upon, as indicated by more disturbing news about Facebook coming to light, and the distracting psychological issues brought on by social media addiction, especially among young people. At number seven, a tie between immigration and abortion. The troubles at the southern border continue to mount. Things have grown so far out of control in terms of immigrants flooding the border towns that Arizona and Texas have had to call in their National Guards. On the abortion front, the Supreme Court's latest action on the Texas abortion law puts Roe v. Wade in further peril of either being eroded or overturned. At number six, climate change and the Midwest tornadoes. Numerous tornadoes ripped through Kentucky and adjacent Midwest states this week, leaving a wake of death and destruction along their deadly paths. And this is the type of extreme weather that fuels conversation and debate about climate change, global warming, and of course the question of whether the weather is caused by human carbon emissions. And if so, what can be done about it? At number five, a tie between race relations and voter legislation. These two issues are significantly connected. We're witnessing the struggle between the concepts of redistricting versus gerrymandering. At number four, crime and violence. There's been a major uptick in street crime, homicides, gun violence, drug trafficking, and flagrant shoplifting in America's major urban centers. It's gotten so bad that even San Francisco's liberal mayor, London Breed, launched an emergency police intervention in San Francisco's crime-ridden Tenderloin neighborhood, targeting a pipeline of illegal drugs that's been fueling the surge in gun violence and deadly fentanyl overdoses. At number three, the January 6th investigation tied with Donald Trump's role in the GOP and the influence it will play in the 2022 and 2024 elections. One of the main aspects of the January 6th stories discussed this week has been the connection between Fox News personalities' texts that have come to light imploring President Trump to intercede in the attack on the Capitol and then changing their tune when talking about it after the fact. It's still uncertain as to the role the former president will play in both the forthcoming 22 midterm election and the 24 presidential election, much of it depending on the results of the January 6th investigation and numerous other legal charges and lawsuits that are mounting against him, all while his popularity among the GOP seems to be unwavering. At number two, COVID-19 variants, vaccines, the winter resurgence, and stats. Uh Uh-oh, the numbers are headed in the wrong direction as we head into the cold winter months. Seems the Omicron variant has taken center stage, along with questions about the efficacy of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And at number one this week, inflation, the Build Back Better bill, supply chain slowdown and a diminished labor force. The economy took the top spot this week in the national conversation as mounting obstacles postponed the passage of President Biden's $2 trillion climate and social spending bill. It's hardly a shoo-in in terms of being passed by the 50-50 Senate, especially with Democrat Joe Manchin of West Virginia standing in the way. Thank you, Kevin Casey from Talkers Magazine. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Let's kick off the interview segment of the program with a visit to Charlotte, North Carolina, and a conversation with Brett Winterbull, the talk show host heard daily, 3 to 6 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Station, WBT. Hey, Brett, uh, how's the economy looking from uh, the perspective of North Carolina? The economy is uh, the biggest topic of the week this week. It sure is, and it is uh, it is functioning well. We have a good economy here in North Carolina. Everything is a little bit more expensive uh, than we would like it to be. Uh, gas is fairly reasonable. I, I can't complain about the gas prices, but uh, certainly to go into the stores and 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 restaurants or and and you know venues for uh, gifts for the holidays, 
uh, you're certainly seeing a, a big uptick in uh, in prices, no doubt. Are people talking about it and complaining about it, or um, is it uh, not as uh, prevalent a topic as it seems in other parts of the country, or as one would think reading the newspapers? Um, people are definitely talking about it. It's it's impacting the bottom line uh, because this isn't just about food staples or gasoline. It's about electricity, right? Which which isn't part of the supply chain in theory. But electricity is getting more expensive. Energy is more expensive. Um, everything that moves along our economy has risen in price because of the underlying supplies and the stuff that you need. And I'll tell you what, we have, uh, we've also talked a fair amount about these terrible tornadoes that struck uh, our, the states in, in Arkansas and, of course, uh, in Kentucky and into the, the Midwest, uh, Missouri as well. And what is so striking about this is, now things are going to be even more compounded because we do have a supply chain issue, and now we're going to have to uh, c- come up with the resources to rebuild in these places. This is going to be a very, very tight window that we're looking at, Michael. Isn't it interesting how now, uh, and, and I'm not saying whether or not you know climate change is real or not real or a conspiracy or exaggerated, but isn't it interesting how at this point in terms of contemporary history, whenever there's bad weather, it immediately is attributable to climate change, and that subject comes up. Um, It's amazing how that works. Look, it all depends on what lens you're looking at. If you believe that climate change is a a tremendously important issue, you're going to look at these tornadoes, and you're going to say, climate change is the culprit. This is what is happening. The uh, The broader climate in our country and in our world is, is an important thing. If you're somebody who, who believes it's something else that's a priority, you're going to go and focus on that. Uh, during the Cold War, we certainly know that uh, people would blame the Soviets for things, right? Or if you're a border state, uh, you're, you're concerned about the immigration issue. It, what, what matters here is what issue is forefront of your mind, and you're going to look there. The question I ha- often ask for, for my listeners who are people that, that put climate change as an important issue, I'm not, a, I'm not a skeptic on climate change. I do believe the climate is changing. I just don't know how much mankind has to, to do with it as, as much as they do. But the question I always ask is, if this is the case and we want to spend trillions of dollars, why not work on weather modification rather than sending Bernie Sanders $70 trillion to send it over to the U.N. and hope for the best? Right. That's true. You see, because if it is uh, man-made, so to speak, then it's a talk. Then we're talking about energy. We're talking about mm-hmm. um, business and we're talking about politics. <laughs> Whenever. <That's right. laughs> and, 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 and that's how it, that's how things become politicized. I want to backtrack to uh, what you mentioned earlier about the economy. What's your um, personal view of this thing that's called the great resignation or the big quit that's uh, kind of a a weird idiosyncratic aspect of our economic discussion? Well, look, I I think it's an important story, and I think we have to pay close attention to it. I have a couple of Gen Z kids, right? My kids are are, uh, at the tail end of high school or just at the beginning of college. They have done very well under this economy, especially with the great resignation, because people are leaving their jobs and they're creating openings uh, to to get out there and do stuff uh, in service industries and, of course, in, in the uh, in, in the restaurants and things like that. Now, this is going to create a bit of a of a challenge for the folks that are going to have to deal with the great resignation, because it would seem to me that most of the people that are hanging it up are people with a great deal of experience in industries and in businesses, and as a consequence, you're going to lose that uh, you're going to lose that collateral that you've had for built up over all these years in terms of business and, and whatnot. So, 
Um, this is the great challenge, and what we're dealing with, I think, is, is going to be a byproduct for, for a time to come. But it's also the baby boomers. It's the great turnover. It's all that sort of stuff that we're dealing with, too. Well, you bring up a very good point. And um, shortly before you and I are having this conversation, new studies have revealed that um, even though there is indeed a great resignation, people are quitting, people are retiring, that um, right. the lion's share of the percentage of people leaving their jobs are people over 55 and, um, and older. I mean, not just at 55, um, people are speeding up their retirements. And interestingly, and, and, and I'm sure you've heard this, that one of the reasons they're doing so is inflation is increasing the value of their homes. <laughs> and thus, they have more equity and they feel a little bit more confident in, in, in saying, oh, the hell with this. I don't want to go back to work. I don't want to, you know, the pandemic has yeah. rearranged people's thinking. So that's kind of a, a, of an interesting cycle in itself. Wouldn't you agree? It's a huge cycle. It's, it's a huge part of the cycle. And, and, and look, I you start to get into a pretty, uh, pretty nerve-wracking area at some point too here, Michael, because um, it, it can start to look, like, it can start to look like 2010. You know, 2008 and 2010. You're taking equity out of your home. What happens if the housing value goes down? Uh, it's all measured risk here at, at this stage of the game. But what I, what I do think is going to potentially change that sort of mindset is that if, if this, if this inflationary cycle continues the way it looks like it's going to continue. Your, your savings are going to evaporate quite quickly, uh, maybe, maybe much more quickly than, than some folks have budgeted for. Yeah, and that's, of course, the uh, the difficult part. You have to do something. You can't just sit there and wait. Otherwise, right. uh, your your nest egg could go in the opposite direction of uh, where you want it to go. You mentioned earlier, it, it, you mentioned the term immigration reform. And I know I don't know how big a, a deal in uh, the, the middle Atlantic immigration is. You mentioned border states. But, but what is... Uh, what is your view, and perhaps your listeners, I, I, I don't know how big an issue it is there, but uh, what's your view? Because you you spent a lot of time in San Diego, and this is an issue yes. you know about. Um, this is a crisis. Um, they're calling in the National Guard. They're, 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 there's major problems in cities along the border, and the, the mainstream press doesn't seem to be covering it, and I'm not so sure that the Biden administration is that concerned about it. What do you think? Well, I think there's two parts here, right? First of all, I'm a huge believer in legal immigration. I know uh, everybody says the same thing, but it's it's incredibly important to bring vibrancy into the country over a period of time. And you want to bring people in who are going to have skills and opportunities and things like that to come in and enjoy the blessings of this country. I always say on my show, you know, this is not our country. We are stewards of it in this time, but it is not our country uh, in the way that you would say, I, I possess this and you may not have any of this, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's really the great story of America. What I have an issue with, though, is people who are unvetted in a pandemic climate, uh, young people being bussed around and dumped and put into different locations. I believe in an orderly run in terms of immigration, get your papers in order, do the sort of things that you need to do, because we have to know who it is that's coming into the country. And, and, and any nation that doesn't do that ends up in, in abject chaos. The people of the Carolinas are incredibly generous, as the people of New England are, the far west, and, and certainly the border states as well. Um, they are a welcoming community, but it needs to be in an orderly fashion. Uh, the analogy I like to use is you and I are going to go to a concert. We've bought our tickets. We're going to go see Billy Joel at the Garden, right? We've bought our tickets. We go there to sit down. We've paid our, our way, and suddenly there are two people sitting there who don't have tickets, but are taking up our seats. And we said, but we bought these tickets. And, and perhaps an usher says, well, too bad. 
they got there first. Uh, that's just the way it's going to be. We would never put up with that in our private lives. We shouldn't put up with it in our political and public lives. That's the afternoon talk show host heard daily on radio station WBT in Charlotte, North Carolina, Brett Winterbull. Coming up next, one of Newsmax Media's most colorful talk show hosts on both radio and TV. You're plugged in to the Michael Harrison Rap. Fellow radio lover, Christmas is only one week away. Are you feeling the pressure to come up with a cool gift for that special friend or relative in your life? Especially with all those high-tech here-today-gone-tomorrow gizmos flooding the marketplace? Well, here's a gift idea I bet you never even thought of. Get him a real radio that you chose online from a gigantic selection of radios. C. Crane specializes in high-quality radios, AM, FM, and shortwave radios, big radios and small radios high-powered radios and battery-operated radios, even radios with cranks when no power is available, and radios that can access the Internet. C-Crane is the place to go to find a unique holiday gift for that radio lover in your life, and perhaps one for yourself. Call 800-522-8863. That's 800-522-8863, or visit them online at ccrane.com. That's ccrane.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Rap. Let's take a trip to Kansas City, Missouri, and pay a visit to Rob Carson, who hosts a weekly TV show on Newsmax TV called What in the World, as well as a recently launched syndicated daily radio show. So what do you think about uh, the, the relationship going forward between the GOP and Donald Trump? I think he's going to be the candidate. He hasn't, he hasn't slipped in popularity at all with the base. He's going to be the candidate. Um, I think that uh, Ron DeSantis will most probably be his uh, running mate. That's the I just that's just the, the way it is. I, it, it, it's nonsense to think otherwise. You at this point, it's absolute nonsense to think otherwise. You don't see any kind of a split between the two? Um, uh, you think that they're, they're already in communication or, or what? Because there's talk about Trump, you know, resenting DeSantis at this point. Well, here's the thing. I don't think he does. Um, I do say that, you know, uh, the party already has divided, and the ones who are anti-Trumpers and they are the establishment country Republicans like Liz Cheney um, and Adam Kinzinger, uh, they hold no sway in the, with the electorate as far as uh, Republicans are concerned. The reason why Donald Trump is, uh, is popular with conservatives and with Republicans is because he went to D.C. and he did what he said he was going to do. Regardless of what you think of his tweets, he did what he said he was going to do. Um, and, and, and they, he gave the media and the political establishment what for. I didn't like his tweets initially. They really bugged me. I thought they were very uncouth. And then, you know, I was like, that doesn't matter. He's a street fighter. So I, I think it's folly to think otherwise. I think it's also folly to think that Joe Biden will run in 2024 because I am not meaning to be cruel. I've had more than one, um, uh, relative with dementia move into our house in, as a kid in, in Iowa. My mother built and my father built a spare bedroom on for at least three or four of my rel relatives at the end of their life. And I see this happening to Joe Biden and there's it's, it is not even 
uh, in the realm of possibility that he will run for president in 2024. That's just my opinion. And what is, what's your opinion on uh, Donald Trump and the uh, the January 6th investigation as that's uh, playing out? Do you see that as a problem? Um, I the FBI, is, the FBI has already said it wasn't an insurrection. That's all I really have to say about it. I do not believe that Donald Trump was in on it. I, I do believe there is a plenty of evidence to show that uh, some people, some players, some feds were involved. And I'm not being conspiratorial. Watch the video. Uh, I think that there were a lot of things happening there. Uh, you don't just invite people into the Capitol. Uh, and people don't go into the Capitol, um, you know, especially moms. There were a lot of moms. There were a lot of middle-aged ladies. And, and in the in the rotunda, even Adam Carolla mentioned, wow, uh, this is kind of weird because they're staying within the velvet rope in the rotunda. That doesn't look like a riot to me. Um, so I think it's a shame. I think that it was a setup to some degree um, uh, because there was, well, you know, I really don't want to get into all of this. I, that's, I, I, that's fine. That's fine. I, 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 I'm I interested in what you want to get into and what you don't want to get into. But um, yeah. a lot of people are interested in, in where you stand on these things because uh, you, you're a new player uh, in terms of syndicated radio and uh, and you're making uh, an impression on people on television. So uh, I think it was it's a setup. Uh, I'll just say I think it was a setup. Um, and I think a lot of people are languishing in in the prison who do not need to be languishing in prison. I think it's absurd that we have a Bastille in Washington, D.C. That's Newsmax TV and Newsmax radio talk show host Rob Carson. This conversation is an excerpt of a much longer in-depth dialogue I had with Rob that you can hear on my podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview. It posts this coming Tuesday at mhinterview.com. You're plugged in to The Michael Harrison Rap. There's always a tremendous amount of conversation on the talk shows of America regarding problems and issues pertaining to the digital era. There's the ongoing danger of constant breakdowns in cybersecurity to psychological damage inflicted by the demands and pitfalls of social media. People of all ages certainly have enough to be depressed about as we struggle through these challenging times. But it seems the younger generation is having a particularly tough go at dealing with it. Children face bullying and social pressure, not to mention the constant distraction imposed by their addiction to the smartphone. Joining us from Princeton, New Jersey, is nationally noted forensic psychiatrist and medical profession podcaster, Dr. Renee Kohansky. Michael, this is a conversation you and I actually started when, when the whole Internet began. Uh, it's, in, it's, you know, it's, it's inception in terms of blowing up from just a, a little concept to this humongous influence that it is today. And, and, and you saw it to begin with, and I absolutely agree that this is, that this is really true. So, yeah, so there's, there is all these different media where kids are coming on, and it's, a, it's, it's an avatar of whom they are. These, uh, the, the social representation of children on these media are avatars of people. They're not the actuality of whom the kids are. So they represent themselves in these certain lights. It's like a story. It's an actor of the kids. And then it's not an actuality of who they are. And when they get out in the real world, they then have to live up to this thing that they portray themselves to be. And it's extraordinarily difficult. And the pressure, depending on whom you've declared yourself to be, the pressure to be that thing that's not real is huge. And then not only that, not only that, you add to that an extremely, and when I say extremely, I say powerful addiction component of, of being on the social media. So the very act of going onto social media 
has a highly addictive component to it. It gives you, you know, everybody knows, hears about this. It's like almost so commonplace, uh, a dopamine hit. So when you go on that, when you, it's almost like as you open it up, you're starting to rev up the parts of your brain that have that addiction circuit. And that all gets jazzed up as you're opening up your, your social media account. So young children are getting onslaughted by all of this input and they're and they're tiny and the little brains are developing and neurocircuits are starting to connect and dendrites are starting to spread out and you're getting all this kind of negative input into this development instead of the normal, rich kind of connections that you have from real-world interactions. A couple of things you bring up that's very interesting to me. As a person in the media and uh, in, in many ways the press over the years, there's an old saying, don't believe your own press. And uh, this whole idea with the avatars and that they present themselves in a certain way and then they start to, on a certain level, believe that that's who they really are and then they go out in the real world and they find out they're not. That's, that's the modern-day equivalent of... Um, you know, being seduced by your own your own press. You, you know that old expression: "Don't believe your own press." A lot of people do, and uh, they wind up in, in psychological uh, distress. The um, this, this whole component of it being addictive is very interesting uh, that as well. And um, so, you're saying that the the process of you know, knowing that you've got a text or knowing that um, there's something out there about you or, or just the interaction, constant interaction, it actually, it actually releases a chemical response um, because psychiatrists deal with the chemistry of psychology as well as psychology. So there, there actually is a, um, a measurable chemical response to being on Instagram or uh, Facebook or all the things that uh, take up so much time with 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 people of all ages, let alone young people. But then again, we're supposed to protect young people from addiction. Uh, that's what you're saying. It's it's the case. It it yeah. actually is chemical, huh? We're protecting our young people from zero, from nothing today. I mean, I'm being a little, maybe slightly hyperbolic, but not not a lot. We we really we. I mean, the truth of the matter is, we really should take away. We should take away everything. We should take away their cell phones. And as to the question of addiction, um, how many adults do you know who sit at a dinner table and put away their cell phone? So you want to talk about addiction? Mm-hmm. Or or even multitasking. Um, you know where. Um... Uh, the cell phone is sitting on the dinner table. It's sitting on the lunch table. And um, I find this... And this is perfectly acceptable social behavior today. I, I, I find it uh, very irritating. And it's not like I don't have a tremendous amount of time and, and uh, business on the Internet. I have to tell you, if it weren't for, if it weren't for the Internet, I couldn't be in business. Um, so I spend, I spend a tremendous amount of time... Uh, you know, in cyberspace. Um, but when I have a, a lunch or a dinner, I especially, one of the things that I do is I'm going to be, you know, offline. I'm going to be gone for an hour, hour and a half. I don't do that that often anymore. First of all, with a pandemic, we don't have that many lunches, dinners, and social events. But when I do, I just put it away. I just put it away. I let all my associates, people that I work with, know I'm going to be, you know, what's the term? Out of pocket, which is a crazy term, but we know what it means. And that's it. Um, I was actually going to take a bet. I was going to say I 
I would venture, and I and and your business, by the way, is complete. You know, is very much your your media industry. So you're you definitely need to be connected to that. But I was going to say, I bet that when you take a business meeting, my I, you know, <laughs> I would I would have put you know, if I were a betting woman, I would have said, I bet your phone is not on the table when you're in your business meeting. Never. Never. I, I just that's that's part of I, I, I won't have a meeting if if I think that I am going to be subject to interruption or distraction. But we, you see what, now here's the good news. We need to teach people this behavior. So we need to teach people that proper social etiquette is putting your phone away and that you are actually more important that if you put your phone away, that it actually speaks to a level of incredible discipline. Like, I mean, you know, a lot of people, let me, let me rephrase that. Um, because of the world that we live in, you can't get away from the fact that people have images that they want to uphold. So if we create, and everything is about images, so if we create the image that actually the cool thing to do, and I don't care how we do it, all I care is as somebody who is a studier of human nature and, and, you know, and for as much as we can out for the good of human nature, all I care about is like getting a result that's good for the brain and that's good for the mind and ultimately good for human beings. So so all I care about is getting that phone off the table and getting that phone away from children especially. So if we can create the conversation that it's like really cool to have your phone away, that's all I really care about. Mm-hmm. That's all I care about. So yeah. if we start creating the conversation that you're actually like just like like anonymous is gonna be the new is gonna be the new famous, if we can create the conversation that keeping your phone off the table is the new keeping the phone on the table, that you're so important that's the conversation I want. You're so important mm-hmm. that you don't need your phone on 24-7. That's how important you are. If that's the way that we approach it, great. And the other thing is we are parents. We are parents. We are in control of our children, not the school, not the government, not anybody else. Parents, take our phones, take the computers away from the children. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons this has gotten out of control is because of the notion, and it's based in, in fact, uh, that the children know how to use digital technology uh, better than their parents do. A lot of parents turn to their <laughs> school-age children, uh, even younger than school than, than teens, preteens, to help them with their internet issues. So uh, it almost gives the kids a sense of professionalism that they don't deserve <laughs> because they know how to oh, use. But you know what? Yeah, but Michael, that's a great point. That's a great point. So use that to build relationship with your kids. So so it gives a chance. So it gives, so here's what it's doing. It's giving children a sense of mastery and a sense of you know in that sort of developmental area where you're trying to separate from your parents. That's great. That's wonderful. We want that, but we also want it on the terms of the parents. So during that you know 20 minutes or hour, whatever time you're giving, you're allowing computer time. Okay, this is the time where young Johnny can show you know mom and dad how to use the computer but that's it now i know i'm being like ridiculously overly optimistic but if you start having the conversation that it's okay to have this conversation i mean you know am i being completely crazy that it's okay to have this conversation no you're not being completely crazy at all um although um Children might think so. <laughs> and the but that's two, okay. That's and our job. Things, and the, that's and the our two job things, as parents and the, right, and to two, set limits with children uh, yeah. and say, no, you can't do this. And the it's most, not good for you. 
The most important thing is that the children, back to the beginning of this conversation, the children have to be able to resist the pressure of um, uh, being bullied and the uh, social pressure that they face. You know, the original part of this conversation, kids facing pressure and stress uh, as part of the social media experience. And parents have to um, be able to resist the pressure of seeming to be restrictive, too restrictive in a world that's very permissive. Let's grow some courage. Let's grow some um, some confidence in ourselves as people, and let's get ourselves back to understanding what's important for ourselves, what's important for our children, and start modeling behavior. When we start doing it, other people will start doing it, and have confidence in our decisions. And when and, and children like boundaries, children like limits, and children will raise to the level of our expectations. So let's hold them to a very high standard um, and let's expect our schools to do the same things. That's noted psychiatrist and medical field podcaster, Dr. Renee Kohansky, joining us from Princeton, New Jersey. we got more coming your way, but first a quick programming reminder to join us for next week's Christmas edition and the following week's 2021 year in review. And what a year it has been. As I've said a number of times, it seems like only yesterday we were looking forward to 2021 as being the remedy for what we all dealt with in 2020. Coming up next, a look at the disturbing spike in crime and violence afflicting American cities from San Francisco to Philadelphia. You're plugged in to the Michael Harrison Wrap. This report is brought to you by Genesis 2 Project, G2P. Recently, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, released a preliminary report on possible threats posed by UFOs, now known as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, and the progress the Department of Defense, UAP Task Force, has made in understanding any threats. Dr. J.C. Van Velkenberg is a former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist who has been working with G2P to bring scientifically sound UAP data to the public. G2P has released the first scientifically authenticated documentation of UAPs, including images captured with infrared technology. Primo Forensics performed the digital forensic analysis. In tandem with the ODNI report, these data support the development of relevant processes, policies, technologies, and training for the U.S. military and government personnel upon encountering UAP. Visit Genesis2Project.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap as we discuss the hottest topics of the past week in the national conversation. Crime and violence are two related topics that are being discussed in the number four position this week on the Talker Survey. Joining us to discuss this disturbing problem is the Dean of Philadelphia Talk Radio, Dom Giordano. He's heard daily noon to 3 p.m. on WPHT. Um, what's going on with this crime problem in America? Well, what's going on, I think, is you have, boy, a massive machine of deflection 
away from the real problem. The real problem where we're having the biggest crime are in maybe 15 to 20 big cities, Michael, where these progressive prosecutors have gotten in and they've just decided to diminish or completely ignore various laws. They're blaming COVID. That's the other side. But Nancy Pelosi this week at her weekly news conference said, there's all this lawlessness out there. We all agree it's lawless. How could that be? I don't know any reason. And she turned to the media and said, do you? (laughs) And I was waiting. I wish I had been in that crowd to start talking about it. So when Pelosi from that position throws it out there and recognizes it, it's huge. I think uh, 12 cities, all led by progressive DAs, many of them Soros-backed in elections, are on the cusp of, well, 12 have already set all-time murder records for that city. Philadelphia, the previous record, under Larry Krasner, our uh, Soros-backed guy in his first election, to the tune of about $1.5 million, which in a DA's race in Philadelphia, that's double probably what we've ever seen from one donor or triple easily. We had 499 murders last year. As we speak at this time, we're up to 535. And we still have one of the deadliest stretches between now and the end of the year. And uh, Larry Krasner made national news recently, Michael, because he said, well, yes, gun violence is up, but all the other violence is not really up. He was trying to parse and get out of this. And three major Democrats, Seth Williams, the former DA that gave way to Krasner, Ed Rendell, Governor Ed Rendell is nationally known, and Michael Nutter also, uh, former mayor, they all came after him on my show, and they were particularly offended by how he pointed the finger at them and everyone else, two men who are African-American and Ed Rendell's white, does it matter? Krasner, they pointed out, is the problem And they went into great detail, some of these cases, of how he has just let people out. Cash bail seems to be the thing in these cities where you have prosecutors not believing uh, you should keep violent people with a long record in jail. If they can get a minimum amount and get out, New York seems to be the capital, they're out. It's interesting. You know, we've all seen the show Law and Order, which um, has the police, mm-hmm. the police end of the equation and then the court end of the equation. Some people think that um, the, the violence and the, and the crime is uh, exacerbated by us not knowing the difference between police reform and police defunding. Um, it's very interesting, the role of prosecutors in this. And you're basically saying that the, um, in this case, progressive or liberal prosecutors are letting people off um, that should be behind bars. Is that is that what you're basically saying, as opposed to uh, the police making the original arrests or patrolling the streets and or uh, other places that crime takes place? I mean, we're basically talking about street crime, aren't we? Yes. And, and, and gun... Yeah, and, and Michael, um, I would distinguish between liberals like Michael Nutter, Ed Rendell, they're both liberal guys, and Seth Williams, who I've had policy differences with over the years, but evidence that we get along, we're talking maybe finer points here. They all came on the show at the drop of a hat. They were very personable. We had a great relationship over the last 20 years. I'm distinguishing between that and progressives, maybe even extreme progressives like Larry Krasner, who, when he was elected, said, I'm not a prosecutor. I'm a defense attorney with power now. And it's a two-pronged thing. 
um, we see these prosecutors not only go light or extremely light on criminals, but they are hyper to go after the police on top of that. And I just thought of something. It wasn't only Nancy Pelosi this week, but the mayor of San Francisco, which has been not the murder capital, but the retail theft, all those businesses closing, the blatantness of it. We're not going to put up with this blank blank anymore. We're going to go back to a city where there's law. And she is an extreme. She's a a progressive, maybe a liberal mayor who said in San Francisco, they've had enough of it. So it's not just conservative talk radio. Mm-hmm. Why is the mayor of San Francisco, of all places, saying that? You know, Don, what you're talking about in San Francisco reminds me of what happened in New York back uh, in the 70s when uh, David Dinkins was the mayor. And um, and you couldn't walk down the street without getting harassed by, by um, you know, beggars. And uh, but, but we're not just talking about homeless people asking for a handout. We're talking about people that were very scary and um, aggressive. And then, you know, the stories of the squeegee men uh, are legendary. And there was tremendous crime. I mean, you know, that whole set of movies that Charles Bronson, you know, made about the vigilante and the um, the Bernie Getz story. Uh, vigilanteism was considered to be um, necessary. Let me make a long story short. I mean, Rudy Giuliani was accused of being a fascist, but he... Um, he cleaned up the city, and, and, and the city was pretty safe for a number of years until uh, this new chapter. You know, uh, Bloomberg carried it on for a while, and now under Bill de Blasio. So I can understand why the mayor of uh, San Francisco realizes that um, it's time to get tough on crime. Now, some places, you know, small towns, you know, you don't need to have that type of thing. But in a very, very big city, uh, you can't control it. it there's too many too many people with too many hiding places and too many angry people and other social problems. So um, I don't know. I wonder why anybody in a place like Philadelphia, San Francisco, or New York would even take the progressive or liberal um, ideology and consider themselves having a chance of being elected. What do you think? Well, they're elected, uh, Michael. Here's a case in point. I don't know all of them, but my sense is here in Philadelphia, Mayor Nutter, who's a liberal guy, but just a liberal. He's not Krasner, broke it down, that when Krasner ran the first time, to your point, it was a crowded race. There were like five, six, or seven Democrats. The Democrat always wins in Philadelphia. Krasner was the most radical by far, and Soros gave him, again, $1.5 million. We were just coming off the Floyd thing. or I'm sorry, we were just coming off Trump being elected, and people wanted a pushback. And they wanted some kind of symbolic pushback. And you put those two things together with Krasner, and he was able to do it. And once you're the incumbent, you won again in May, uh, the primary, it becomes easier to do. So I'm sure in these other cities there are factors like this. And Soros has been brilliant in a strategy of identifying these people. In other words, if you want to lobby and take a whole legislature, even in, say, a small state, Nobody probably has the money to do that. But if you put in an attorney general or a DA who's going to follow this ideology, and and here's the psychological trade-off that's happened here. Nutter said this to me. Krasner is the great white hope. He's telling people in black and brown communities, a lot of innocent people went to jail. A lot of cops are just racist. Other city officials are racist. I'm going to reform all that. And the bottom line is, if in making that omelet, some eggs are broken, a.k.a. 500 people are dead, 
deep down he's saying, well, that's the price, but this is that big that it's even worth that price. Nutter broke it all down, and he was aghast at that. But I think that's exactly going on. And there's just enough people, enough woke people, and also uh, people that maybe have someone who's in jail that bought the Krasner line and continue to buy it, despite the fact that we have the highest per capita murder rate in the country, one of the worst in the world. That's radio talk show host Dom Giordano of WPHT Philadelphia. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Although there wasn't a lot of talk about the recent 58th anniversary of the assassination of JFK several weeks ago, there was a buzz this week upon the release of hundreds of previously classified documents pertaining to the event that changed the course of history and remains a nagging conspiracy theory that's now spanning generations. We're joined by our Washington correspondent and executive director of the D.C. radio company, Victoria Jones. Well... I'm always intrigued when long-delayed records are released, classified secret files are released, particularly when the FBI, the CIA, and all the other intelligence agencies don't want them released. I'm always intrigued. And um, I'm intrigued with this release because the historians and the researchers are saying there's there's no there there. Uh, It's always the next time. And uh, the vast majority of nearly 1,500 documents that were released um, are are, are nothings. They're duplicates of previously released documents with just a few redacted words revealed and uh, things that researchers had already figured out. So people are frustrated. One big omission, they're saying, is there are tapes. very interesting interviews that a historian conducted with Jackie Kennedy, late president's wife, and his brother Robert Kennedy in 1964 and 65. And neither Jackie nor RFK believed that Kennedy was killed by just one man for for nothing. They privately said, according to this historian, that JFK was killed by domestic enemies. And that is on these tapes. Well, I um, certainly am not surprised. And, um, you know, I personally, I've gone on record and I'll go on record again. You know, first of all, I don't know for sure what happened, but I find it very hard to believe that a lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, of all people, with all of his uh, strange connections and uh, his checkered history. And then, of course, the Jack Ruby episode. Um, I just can't believe that that happened (laughs) the way the story says it did. And what I find fascinating is how the years have gone by and there's still a connection to the same scoundrels who've been covering it up. (laughs) You know, when they say we're going to open it in 50 years so that, uh, you know, it it won't have the same impact on our national security um, and and we'll be safe from the contemporaneousness of it. Well, it's not the case. It's it's the same, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And it, it might be the first example in the modern era, if we could still call it modern, of fake news, conspiracies, deep state, government cover-ups, and all those nasty things that now we don't know which way is up if you really are a person who's fact-oriented and tries to get to the truth. Uh, do you see it that way? I do see it that way. And all presidents have done this, every single one of them, including 
um, President Trump and President Biden. Now, Biden has said that there's a second deadline, December 15th next year, uh, for any remaining documents to undergo another rigorous security review. Um, and, uh, and uh, they have to give good reasons why they should not be withheld. Um, but who really trusts that they're not going to come up with some reason why they should not be withheld. Isn't it interesting how no matter what a president stands for when they're elected, whether it's Trump or Obama and Biden or Bush, and look at how different all these uh, these individuals are in terms of their politics, and they all claim to come in and they're going to change things and they're going to you know clear clear the swamp as, as Trump said, and then something happens after they become president. Uh, uh, specifically on things like the JFK cover-up. But there are so many other things. There's the UFO cover-up. There's, you know, yes. and not, uh, It makes you wonder, when a person becomes president, are they taken into a room with this council that nobody knows who they are, and they're basically told, here's the real deal, and you better not stray or else? It, it, it just makes me wonder how that always happens. And, and you know, listening to myself, I feel like I, I, I sound like one of these, you know, people that believe... <laughs> all of these outrageous conspiracies, but that just seems to be very, very striking. I've always wondered what happens. They become president. They get some briefing. Uh, it's a special briefing. And they're told here's exactly what you said. Here's the deal on area 52 on this, on this, on this, they come out of it. Absolutely trembling. You know, they go upstairs, they have a strong cup of tea or whatever they have, and they're never quite the same. That's Victoria Jones in the nation's capital. And that about does it for this latest installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap, an overview of the national conversation. Looking back at the week of Monday, December 13th through Friday, December 17th, 2021. Looking ahead, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week, including the ever-lurking unknown factor. That unanticipated surprise story that can take the national conversation spinning off in a totally unexpected direction. We sure do live in interesting times. I can be reached via email at michaelatalkers.com. My podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, can be heard at mhinterview.com. And if you want to stay in touch with the inner workings of the talk media industry, please visit talkers.com. The Michael Harrison Wrap. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Wrap is a production of Good Phone Communications in conjunction with Talkers Magazine and Talk Media Network. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.